All right, it looks like I've unmuted. So hello everyone, I'm Peg and I'm an alcoholic. Lovely to meet you. And thank you, Mark, for inviting me and thank you all for, for being here. Um, my story is similar to everybody else's. I started drinking young, I started drinking hard and I decided that I better sober up because the alternative was not looking very attractive. So. The short version of my story is this. I started drinking um, when I was around 13 or 14. And my first drink was at the uh, hospitality after my grandmother's funeral where I was helping my mother clean up. And there was this glass of a lovely amber liquid and I just picked it up and threw it back. And my thoughts simultaneously were, oh God, and oh my God, um, that first drink suddenly felt like I was alive in a way that I hadn't been. And um, as a young person, I was a pretty serious tennis player. And so after the hospitality was done and I'd had that shot of what I later learned was scotch, I was off playing tennis. And uh, I'm grateful that I have good hand-eye coordination that allowed me, allowed me to be fairly intoxicated and still play some pretty good tennis all the way through high school and even into college. And um, I am grateful for all the different kinds of trials and travails that I've experienced because I wouldn't be where I am being the person that I want to be if I had kept on drinking. So, you know, I drank hard as a kid. I drank my way out of friendship circles early on in high school. I was almost expelled from my Catholic high school. I was terribly intoxicated at a school dance and we had nuns. We had an Irish teaching order, actually, presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, I was incredibly intoxicated at a school dance my senior year. And the last thing I remember to, I remember saying to one of the nuns before I passed out, who's wearing layperson's clothing, was, and your clothes are ugly too. And so the next day back at school, I suddenly found myself in the Dean of Discipline's office where I was threatened with suspension. And my parents said, you know, if you keep drinking like this, we're not going to allow you to go away to college. We're going to keep you home where we can keep an eye on you. But that wasn't enough to stop me because I couldn't stop on my own yet at that point. And I trotted off to college. I never got caught again drinking in high school, even though my parents had caught me numerous times before. Um, the late 70s, 19, early 80s, we didn't really have the language for talking about young people with addictions. We just... We just didn't. My parents honestly didn't know what to do with me. And uh, if you shake any of my family trees, you're going to have to duck because everyone who falls out will be an alcoholic. And that's not all that surprising. And so I sort of come to have this condition. Honestly, uh, the nature nurture question doesn't really interest me all that much. If I had a predisposition to drink, eh, somewhat interesting. But the more interesting question always is, why do we start to pick up those first drugs or those first drinks? Or why do we start to engage in certain kinds of behaviors? What are we looking for? And for me, I was looking for a way to try to feel at ease and to fit in. I already felt very different from a lot of my friends. Um, I knew pretty early on that I had no interest in boys. The only time that boys held any interest for me was if they were better tennis players than me. And they were either on my side of the net playing doubles with me or they were across the net and they were my opponent and I was going to, you know, beat them senseless with the tennis racket. And um, I knew that I didn't want to be gay or lesbian or a dyke or a queer. I mean, those words that really were weapons. 
um, at the time. Some of them have been co-opted now. We talk about queer theory and we have things at gay pride parades here like dykes on bikes, so lesbians on motorcycles. But I knew that's what I was and I didn't want to be that. And so I was already feeling steeped in shame. I felt like shame was staining me all the way through my very being, that my very being was something to be ashamed of. And so I drank to try to manage the shame. And as you all can imagine, that really didn't go very well, that I would you know, rapidly drink beyond what was a point where I felt comfortable and I was having fun. I just kind of did a flyover of that. And then I would land in the maudlin and the weepy and the angry and the, the kind of uncontrollable. So I scared a lot of my friends away. They didn't know what to do with me. So I became ashamed of that. So I was ashamed of my sexual identity. I was ashamed of my drinking. I was making reckless choices. Um, but somehow I managed not to get kicked out of school. And I trotted off to college where I thought, ah, geographic cure. Nobody knows me here. I can make a new start and I can drink normally here because nobody knows me. You know, there is this expression, no matter where you go, there you are. So there I was in all of my alcoholic glory, my raging alcoholic glory. Um, I almost drank myself to death. Uh, sophomore year of college, I was quite sick. I had both mono and chickenpox, and both of those can affect your spleen. And I was drinking so much, I almost ruptured my spleen. I was lucky that I didn't. And I remember the physician at the infirmary saying, well, just don't drink. That's not a problem, is it? And I thought, oh, yeah, it's a major problem. But of course, I said, oh, no, not a problem at all. And so I was very lucky. You know, I feel like if I'm a cat, I've already used up several of my lives. And I tried my first AA meeting when I was 19 years old. And sort of how I got there, I can't quite remember. I just know it involved a very cute woman. And we were playing racquetball together. And she said, well, I'm going to an AA meeting. Would you like to go? And I thought, well, I'd like to go with you. So after that AA meeting, I went and um, I was immediately turned off by the, the God language, which I think so many of us are. I mean, particularly those who have been raised against a fairly strong religious backdrop. And for me, I couldn't square myself with the notion of a loving providential God who was going to fix me, was going to remove my defects of character. And that my job was to in some ways, sit down, shut up and get out of the way and let go and let God and all those other expressions that still set my teeth on edge. So I went to that first meeting and then I ran away and never went back to an AA meeting until I had been nearly 20 years sober. And so my sobering up story, I describe it as literally being an accident. Um, I had just graduated from college. I had no clue what I was going to do. I, you know, as, as much as I was drinking in college, I would never drink during athletic season. And I was always still a worker bee. I always did my work. I never handed stuff in late. I showed up to classes and I, I did all of that. And part of that, I think, helped to fuel the fiction that I didn't have a drinking problem. And so when I was drinking, I always felt like I was at war with myself that, you know, we all talk about having that little voice inside of our heads saying, you know, you have a problem. I have a problem. I have a problem. Well, those voices were screaming at me and they were screaming equally loudly. You have a problem and you don't have a problem. And I was trying to live that contradiction. I was trying to. What? Find a sustained and sustainable way to 
kind of willfully self-deceive myself into thinking that I was okay, I was fine. And nothing ever counted as evidence that I wasn't fine, including even drinking myself to death. At the same time, I knew I had a problem. So there was always a lot of noise going on in this head of mine. And it was, I know we talk about, you know, our minds are very dangerous neighborhood. Don't go visit there alone. And I really felt like I was at war with myself. And I remember reading a quotation from the philosopher, American philosopher, William James, who had a profound impact on the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's a different story that maybe I'll touch on lately. But he, he described those of us who are at war with ourselves as having an existence that is little more than a series of zigzags, as now one tendency and now another gets the upper hand. And our spirit wars with our flesh. We wish for incompatibles. Wayward impulses interrupt our most delicate plans. And our lives are one long drama of repentance and of effort to repair our misdemeanors and our mistakes. And that just rang so true for me. And it still rings true for me in recovery for a very long time when I find myself out of balance in a certain kind of way. So how I sobered up, I was graduated from college. I had no plans and I was kicking around one night. I was going to go out to a a bar with my pals. I had been home visiting my parents and I was going to meet my friends. It was 10 o'clock at night and I got uh, T-boned by a pizza delivery person who was speeding without their headlights on. And um, I vaguely remember getting cut out of the car. I vaguely remember being transported to the hospital. I remember waking up in a CT scan and wondering what the hell my head was doing in a clothes dryer. I mean, I really had a very serious concussion. And broken bones and a lot of muscle trauma, but I was extraordinarily lucky. I mean, I should have been killed. Life really is a matter of inches, if even that. And at one point in the hospital, I'm I'm fully awake at this point, and I know the police officer is there to find out if uh, there's any alcohol in my system, which thankfully there hadn't been. There would have been a couple hours later. And a day or two later, I'm still in the hospital and the nurse comes by with, to me, what seems like an amazing sampler platter of narcotic pain medications. And I remember thinking this thought just went across my head so clearly, Betty Ford, here I come. And so the Betty Ford Treatment Center had opened in the uh, 1970s, founded by the first lady of the U.S., Betty Ford. And I just thought I knew what an overachiever I was in drinking alcohol. I had every reason to believe that I would become an overachiever, taking various other kinds of medications. And I knew if I went down that path, it was going to be trouble. So I declined them. And then when I was released from the hospital, I started to realize, well, I haven't had a drink in a little while. And in college, I would go for periods of time where I would stop drinking completely. So I never drank during athletic season. But then at the end of the season party, I'd be off and running again. And then I would stop and then I would start. So my drinking career was always stopping and starting, stopping and starting. And after that accident, I thought to myself, well, why not try to run an experiment with myself? Let me see how long I can go this time. You know, I don't know what will be different this time, but maybe something will be different this time. Maybe this time I won't start up again. 
what do I have to lose? I have absolutely nothing to lose. So I decided I'd see how long I could go. So that was in 1987, and I'm still going. And I still treat it as an experiment. I still treat it as um, the outcome has not yet been shown. All of the data have not been collected. We don't have the results beyond what I'm doing right here and right now. And I like the idea of keeping a very kind of active, nimble relationship to my sobriety and the choices that I make. I never want to take it for granted in any kind of way, except that I did take it for granted. But thankfully, I caught it at that point. So I sobered up and figured out what I wanted to do with my life and things fell into place. And I went off to graduate school and loved my time there. Um, I'm a philosopher. So I, I teach 18 to 22 year olds philosophy and get to talk to them about ethics and their moral commitments, their moral values, their principles, their non-negotiable, which I think some of the most important conversations we have to have with people and things were going really great in my life. I, I had everything in some ways. I had a partner who loved me. I, we had jobs together, which is very rare to be a same-sex academic couple at the same institution and to have job security. We were the, we were the polka dot unicorns, I'd say. And um, had a great dog, had lots of friends. And I woke up with one morning and I thought that, this is a weird thought to have, but it's what I had. I feel like a mouse running around the trim board of my own life. So I felt like I was skulking around my own life. And I thought, I'm not even quite sure what I mean by that, but it scares me. Like, I'm living my life, but I feel like I'm not fully present. I feel like I'm running on autopilot. I feel as if I am disconnected from myself on some very fundamental, basic kind of level. And it scared me because once I recognized that, it felt familiar to me. It felt to me the same as when I had been drinking, that I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing, but I didn't, I didn't get a lot of joy from it. I couldn't explain why I was doing what I was doing, except it was, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I treated my world like a gigantic Christmas snow globe. I turned it upside down and gave it a mighty, mighty shake. Uh, my partner and I broke up, which was quite significant. We had been together for 16 years. And I thought that I needed to take a new stance to my identity as a recovering alcoholic. It had always been what? It had always been there as a fact of the matter for me. But I didn't incorporate it into more aspects of my life. I mean, my friends knew that I didn't drink, but I never kind of talked about my identity as an alcoholic. It felt like that part of me was just kind of stifled in a kind of way. And so in realizing that I needed to take a new relationship to my alcoholic identity, I decided to try AA again. I thought, well, at that point, about 23 years had passed since my botched attempt at an AA meeting. And I thought, well, it'll be different this time. I'm a different person. I know myself more. I'm not in the same kind of acute using phase. You know, look at me. I've got about 20 years of sobriety, all that. And I walked into the rooms and I had the same experience again. 
I don't belong here because I don't subscribe to this belief in God. I don't subscribe to the kind of over-beliefs about a providential God having a will for me, who loves me, who's going to do things for me. And I had a very hard time with the how it works. So many of the meetings that I was going to were fairly, fairly rigid, classic AA. We always read how it works. We always end with the Lord's Prayer. We always have a reading from 24 hours a day. I mean, it was like, and that still wasn't working for me because I felt like somehow I was being dishonest because I don't believe in this God. And when I wouldn't, you know, uh, our meetings would end with, you know, if anyone who cares to join us for the Lord's prayer, please do so. So I would keep my little rear ends seated on the crappy folding chair while everyone else stood up and held hands. And I felt like an outsider. And every so often someone would say to me, well, why aren't you joining us? And, you know, I found myself wanting to snap. You know, did you not hear the invitation as it was extended? Those who want to go ahead and join, but I don't want to leave me alone. And I thought, oh, my, I don't want to have an antagonistic relationship with with people in AA. And for me, it's been always a challenge to draw the distinction between the AA program with its 12 steps that are recommended that aren't required and then the people who are the fellowship and you know what i will say now is my attendance at aa meetings is at best quite spotty but my best friends are all in recovery so i feel like i'm you know trying to to live something a, a little differently there and so as i continue to what evolve in my ways of thinking about what i need in sobriety, what I need in recovery. I always need to pay attention to the ways that, you know, I'm always changing. I am not the same person I was when I was 13. Thank God. Nor at 23, 33, 43, 53, and now in my late 50s. And that's the really good news is that we can change. And in thinking about my own recovery and and thinking about the ways in which you know, the God language has been really alienating for people. For me, I I like to think about ways to make that notion of God as we understood him far more inclusive and expansive. So I had mentioned earlier that, that William James, this American psychologist and philosopher, lived between terrible dates, 1842 and 1910. Um, had a profound impact on the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous, according to Bill Wilson. And that always struck me as really kind of interesting. And, you know, being someone who likes to investigate things, I decided to try to figure out what that meant. And so, you know, we all probably know the origin stories, the mythology, really. It's probably not actually true down to the details, how Bill Wilson described his last sobering up. But the mythology is this, that he was in the Charles B. Towns Hospital in New York City in 1934. It's December, and he is totally at loose ends. He's lost his job. He's living with his wife's family. He doesn't have any money. And his brother-in-law is able to front him the money to go to the Towns Hospital. And while he's there, he's utterly defiant you know, because he's tried to sober up multiple times before and he's utterly defiant. He throws his hands up and says, you know, if there is a God, show yourself now. I'm willing to do anything. 
And then the story goes, he felt a gust that he knew wasn't wind, but was spirit. And then he said, I felt my desire to drink and it was lifted. And then not long after he thought, oh my gosh, am I going cuckoo here? You know, am I hallucinating, which you can do going through alcohol withdrawal and particularly you can do it if you're going through alcohol withdrawal that's being treated with belladonna that causes hallucinations. And so a friend had given him William James's book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. And that book was a lot of first person stories of people who have what James calls spiritual impulses burning at their habitual center of personal energy. These are people um, who live spirituality like an acute fever and not as a dull habit. And in that book, Bill Wilson encountered at least five or six sets of stories about people who had struggled with alcohol in the way that he did. And there's another one in there uh, who struggled with carnal mirth, what we might now call sex addiction. And so Bill Wilson had read that book and he understood the experience he had in the town's hospital as a spiritual experience, as a conversion that was caused by God. But here's the thing. Um, William James, in many ways, was not a Christian of the same sort of ilk as Bill Wilson was. And that when Bill, when William James talked about higher powers and friendly powers, he talked about anything that would be larger to help a person undergo a transformation within themselves. And so he said moral principles, a sense of human decency, uh, enthusiasm for humanity. He said even the belief that you can be a better person, anything larger will do if it's big enough to help you take the next step. And so the example that William James gives of a higher power that we come to feel a continuity with is the American writer Henry David Thoreau, who in the 18, I'm terrible with dates, 1850s, decided to go live a remote existence on this little pond, Walden Pond, that was about two miles from his home in Concord, Massachusetts. And he's walking one day in the mist, and he talks about the ways in which he feels not just a connection to the pine needles, but a communion with it. And communion is, I think, a deeper, almost more sacred connection with something than just a connection. And he sees that he's really no different in kind from the pine needles. And that was one of the most important examples that James gave of higher and friendly powers. So a lot of what I talk about with, with other people, particularly people who are really into AA, is to say, you know, William James offers so much to us who struggle with addiction and recovery, you know, to make sense of the kind of suffering that we experience that others have inflicted upon us and that we then inflict upon ourselves. And that James is also a wonderful companion in understanding how life can be when things like alcohol or drugs don't burn at the center of our energy but instead something spirituality does. And how he defines spirituality, he said, it's unique to every person. It's whatever each of us defines as that to which they want to stand in a solemn relationship, that it's something that you just never joke about, but it's something that makes you reach outside of yourself to something that is more expansive and bigger than you, or it enables you to reach into yourself to find 
what in quoting a Japanese Buddhist says is the heaven within. And so William James is a wonderful companion to those of us who do try to have these spiritual impulses burn at our center. And when you read varieties, you can see where Bill Wilson got the inspiration for the ninth step promises, where all of those kinds of worries and concerns will drift away and you'll feel a kind of confidence to be able to act in the world. And William James talks about what he calls the fruits of the spiritual tree. And he says things like, you come to have a stability in your life. And stability is something that's relational. So stability isn't static, but it's being able to adjust to the circumstances in which you find yourself. So if you've spent any time on boats, for example, you know that you can't just always sit still. You've got to shift your weight in various kinds of ways uh, to bring about a kind of equilibrium. And you'll have a kind of stability in your life where it's no longer that kind of zigzag and that long drama of repentance and repair, trying to make up for your mistakes and your misdemeanors. And he also says you'll feel as if you're able to apprehend new truths, whether you make a new truth or whether you're able to see things in the way that you couldn't before. That, yes, each of us changes, but the world also changes in a fundamental kind of way. And so, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to be doing this work in recovery, it's not that everything is perfect. It's not that we aren't going to be miserable at some time, but we have those kinds of, well, again, he calls them the practical fruits of the spiritual tree. We have those abilities and those skills and those attitudes that enable us to be okay even if what that okay looks like is would be unrecognizable to us right now. And that's what I feel is my great gift that I now have in recovery. I always say, I know that life is going to knock me down. And life has knocked me down hard, very hard this semester. My mom died earlier this semester. And what I know is that I will be okay. And I don't know what that okay looks like. And I know I could be knocked flat on my ass but I'm going to get up and I know that I'm going to get up, not because I've got so many great skills and look at me, how powerful I am. I'm going to get up because I know how to ask for help. I know how to reach my hand out. I know how to put my weight on others. I know when to accept the weight of others and I know I'll be okay. And, you know, thinking about grief, I mean, grief is really front and center with me right now and the ways in which, I would be so mad at myself if I had missed my mother's last month with, if, if I had been intoxicated. I know how mad I would be at myself if I were trying to grieve her while also trying to drink. I would not be able to grieve her well or to grieve in the ways that I need to grieve. And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful. And I'm grateful not just for recovery, but I'm grateful for this condition is how I think of addiction. I don't talk about it as a disease. I don't talk about it as a choice. I talk about it as a condition. It's a limiting condition that I have. I'm grateful for that limiting condition that, you know, if I did have the magic wand, if I could, could go back and change everything, 
I wouldn't do it because I wouldn't be where I am now. I wouldn't be with you all. I wouldn't be able to, to grieve the loss of my mother. I wouldn't be able to be there for my siblings. And one of the greatest gifts I think of recovery for me is no longer hating myself in the same way. I mean, I still have a lot to work to do on myself. That is true. But I think some of the other gifts of recovery are coming to have a self-trust. I mean, I lost my trust in myself for all kinds of good reasons because I was always screwing up in colossal ways. I was always breaking promises to myself and others. And I didn't know myself. And so that was the kind of slap across the face when I decided to try AA after 20 years. I didn't know myself anymore. And as I said, those feelings of being alienated from myself, not knowing myself, they were familiar. And so it was a good reminder that even in recovery, we can lose ourselves in a kind of way. And I think that addiction really at, at the bottom is about losing ourselves. And, you know, particularly when we start, those of us who started drinking young when we're teenagers or, you know, even younger, we aren't fully formed selves. And we do some developmental damage. We don't acquire certain, there's this wonderful expression from a feminist ethicist called the essential arts of personhood. We haven't developed those arts yet. We haven't had the opportunity to practice them in kinds of ways. So we don't have fully formed selves to lose, but we lose them anyway. We don't know ourselves. And if we don't know ourselves and we don't trust ourselves, we can't have any kind of self-love. It's, it's really hard. And so I think the greatest gifts of recovery are starting to move towards having self-trust, moving towards having self-knowledge and self-love. And then I think the hardest thing I know for me is self-forgiveness. And you know, many people think, you know, the hardest thing to do is not deceive yourself. And I think, well, it's very hard not to deceive yourself, but I think it's harder still for many of us to forgive ourselves. Because we can make those inventories. And many of us, even when I tried to make the moral inventory, I had to remind myself it isn't all the defects. You know, sure, I can list all my defects, but for me, it was harder to list strengths or attributes. I couldn't really admit that I had good moral quality, that I had certain kinds of virtues. And, you know, I think where I am now, doing the work I'm doing, being the kind of person that I want to be is so much a work in progress. And it's so much a privilege to get the, to do this such that I can say, I want to live a life that is full of gratitude and not grievance anymore. And grievances are exhausting. They're draining. They're enervating. And instead I choose gratitude because gratitude, I think, can be a higher power. Gratitude can help us reach out beyond our own embattled selves and to reach out to others or to reach out to something we can't define, but it just feels like, well, a higher and friendly power. And that was one of the expressions from William James was higher and friendly. And, and when we do that, I think is when we have the most possibilities to try to lead a good life. And all of us deserve to lead a good life. And I hope that we all are able to 
take unwanted situations and turn them into unwanted opportunities that bring us gifts. And that's how I understand what I was like, what I used to be like, and what I'm like now. And I'm, I'm grateful to be here and I'm grateful for you being here. And I think that's where I'm going to stop for now. So thank you very much.